Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your day that you will not believe if told. For behold, I am raising the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolf. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All they face forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and make it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. This is God's word. We uh, continue our series from the book of Habakkuk, and um, I was reflecting this morning that these are, these are deep, hard, painful, personal things that we're dealing with. Habakkuk is one of those prophets that leads us right into the, the stuff of life and, and allows us to wrestle with, with very real things with God. And so I hope that each sermon from Habakkuk, just like each passage from the book, helps us a little bit to get deeper into relationship with God, to answer some of the questions we have, to, to find rest in Him. Um, if you're new at Chatham, all the sermons are available online on our website, so you can always go back and listen to them or if you missed it or get the manuscript as well. But we're not going to answer all the questions in one sermon, so we have to build. We have to look at this book and we have to see how each question, each answer contribute to understanding of God and our understanding of life with Him. Habakkuk is an unusual prophet in that he is He's not just relaying a message from God to us. He's actually talking to God Himself. There's a dialogue that is unfolding in this book, and He's recording it for us and allowing us to listen in on what God is saying to Him. That's really helpful because it brings us right into that intimate conversation with God. And we see the progression where Habakkuk starts and where he ends, and we'll hopefully trace all of that in the coming weeks. And I hope that that is our progression as well. So last week, we looked at the prophet's first question, and there he complained to God very honestly and openly that God didn't seem to care about all the injustice and violence that the prophets saw in Judah and Jerusalem. He was lamenting God's seeming passivity. God wasn't getting involved with the sin of His people. And we learned last week that God wants us to ask these kinds of questions, that He welcomes us, that He actually wants us to bring our complaints, our struggles, our questions to Him. And as we do that, He doesn't turn us away. He doesn't turn sinners and sufferers away. In fact, He welcomes us, and He hears our questions. He talks with us. He listens to us, and praise God that He does that. That's one 
the first big lesson in Habakkuk is that we need to start talking to God and talking to Him openly. So today, we actually see God answer that kind of open and honest questioning that Habakkuk starts with. And we learn that God responds to him and to us with an immediate answer, telling him what God is going to do, following up with an incredible answer, saying that you're not going to believe it, I'm going to tell you, but you're not really going to believe it. And then that leads us to the ultimate answer in Christ. So the immediate answer, the incredible answer, and the ultimate answer. By immediate, I mean not that it comes right away, but it it speaks directly to the circumstances of Habakkuk's life. God actually addresses very specifically Habakkuk's concern. Remember, Habakkuk was asking, why does God idly look at wrong in verse 3? He's saying, why aren't you doing anything about what's going on in Judah? The prophet saw all the injustice and violence and division and wickedness, and he wants God to intervene. And God's answer to that is, I'm going to intervene, and I will address all the evil in Judah, and I will do so by bringing another nation to destroy Jerusalem and to take the people into exile in Babylon. That's the immediate answer. That is not what Habakkuk was looking for. Habakkuk is asking, what are you going to do about the sin and and wickedness of Judah? God says, I'm going to bring the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and they're going to destroy your nation, and they're going to take the remnant out, and they're going to take them into Babylon where I will teach you, I will discipline you, and I will heal you and change you. That's the answer. That's the immediate answer. In verse 5, God says, I am doing a work. Habakkuk says, why aren't you working? And God says, I am working, I am doing a work, but it's not something you see yet. It's not something that you understand or accept or may even approve of. I'm working, even if you can't see it. Now, the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, became a superpower in the ancient world very quickly. They gained independence from Assyria in 626 B.C. And then in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the great leader of the Babylonians, defeats Egypt at this great battle at Carchemish and consolidates the Babylonian Empire. However, within decades, within several decades, as quickly as Babylon became dominant, it became completely irrelevant. It's taken over by the Persians in 539 B.C. And a Bible reader understands that the time of Babylon's dominance, their superpower corresponds exactly to God's dealings with Judah and the exile of God's people. So when God says, you're not going to understand this, this is, this is something, this is a wonderful work that I'm doing, what he's saying is that I'm going to raise one nation, I'm going to make this one nation a superpower exactly for the time that it takes me to deal with you. It's an amazing thing. For a Bible reader to correlate that and understand that, that God is sovereign over all the nations and He is using one nation to accomplish His purposes for His people in Judah and Jerusalem. This is purposeful. Habakkuk's complaint is, God, you're not active. You're not getting involved in our lives. And God is saying, let me open the door a little bit for you. Let me tell you what I'm actually doing. I am rearranging the geopolitical landscape 
of the ancient Near East to address the iniquity in Jerusalem. He's working on a level that is impossible for Habakkuk and for us to relate to. But this is exactly what God is doing. And he is telling his prophet that this is what he's doing, that he is sovereignly arranging national politics, international politics, to address this particular concern that Habakkuk has about Judah and Jerusalem. So here's one of many application points for today. Whatever we are struggling with, whatever we are looking for God to intervene in and wondering if God knows or cares about it, whatever it is in your life right now, Habakkuk's message to you and to me this morning is that God is doing a work right now to address the situation you are worried about. God is working right now on a level you cannot comprehend to address the specific situation you are praying about. He's already working. Habakkuk says, God, why aren't you working? And God's saying, I am working. And I will tell you what I'm doing. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. And you'll know soon enough what's going to happen, but what I'm doing right now is I'm raising them up. And they will come and they will address exactly the circumstances you are complaining about. We may not know that God is working in our lives. We may not like what He is doing. We may not approve of what He's doing. We may not understand what He's doing, but He is working. The question is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Now just remember that you are praying to a God who raised up the Chaldeans, who exercised almost absolute power in that world for a very specific stretch of time in order to address the sins of his people in Judah. That's the God you're praying to. This is the God who's working in your life right now. Now, another relevant aspect of God's immediate answer to Habakkuk is that God is using evil for good. Now, look at the description of the Chaldeans. I mean, most of our passage is is occupied by, by the description of the kind of people the Chaldeans were. They were exceptionally cruel and violent exceptionally cruel for that world, exceptionally cruel and violent. No regard for other nations. They just, they come and take whatever they want. Nobody can stop them. Nobody can resist them. They are a law unto themselves. They're not, they don't care what other nations think is right or wrong. They have their own understanding of of morality. Their power is their God. And this is who God is going to use to punish the sins of Judah. Habakkuk is going to struggle with it. The next portion, we'll look at it next week, is is Habakkuk saying, how can you do that? How can you, God, who I know to be good and righteous, how can you do that? How can you bring the, the more evil Chaldeans to punish the less evil people of Judah? God is using a greater evil, it seems, to punish a lesser evil. Now, let me give you an example of how it works in real life. A routine doctor's appointment leads to a scan that results in a cancer diagnosis. You meet with an oncologist who insists that the only way to deal with this cancer is an aggressive course of chemotherapy. You'll learn that what that means is, is that they're going to pump poison into your body. Over the course of several months, they're going to almost kill you. And you're going to feel much worse than you have felt 
up to this point. It will be incredibly difficult. And the doctor tells you all this. But at the end of that treatment, the doctor says, there's a really good chance that the cancer that will definitely kill you if left alone, if we address it, there's a really good chance that cancer will be eliminated. The idolatry and injustice of Judah is the cancer. The ruthless Chaldeans is the chemotherapy. But unlike modern medicine that works some of the time, maybe most of the time, God always achieves His goals. And God does it with His people in Judah. What God does to the exile to Babylon is incredible. He rids His people of idolatry. He prepares them for the Messiah. He returns them into the land where they can rebuild on a new foundation. He does all this through the wicked Babylonians. Now, most of us know instinctively that bad things can lead to good things. We know that. There are many stories of people saying, well, at the time I thought it was a bad thing, then it turned out to be a good thing. Of course, there's a lot of stories where bad things happen and nothing good came out of it too. But at least there is an instinctual understanding that some things that seem to be bad may not turn out to be bad in the end. I read a, an interview with Jules Evans, who's an author, and, and he's not a Christian, and he's certainly not trying to defend God's sovereignty over evil or God's providence. That's not what he's doing. But he recounts an accident, an accident that, that became a healing experience to him, showing us that even for a non-religious person, there is a sense in which bad things lead to good things in life. This is how he describes it. He says, I had PTSD and other emotional problems from the ages of roughly 18 until 24. And I feared that I was permanently damaged. Then in 2001, I had a bad skiing accident where I smashed through a barrier on the side of a cliff on a mountain in Norway. That's when I fell 30 feet. I landed and knocked myself unconscious, except I wasn't unconscious. Instead, I had a sort of spiritual epiphany, which much later I discovered was quite similar to other people's near-death experiences. It involved a feeling of immersion into a white light, which was intelligent and loving. It made me feel deeply loved and okay, and it made me believe there is something in us that can't be permanently damaged or lost. Now, this is important. After that experience, I felt very healed and rejuvenated for several months. I'm not sure how to interpret what happened to him. I don't know. And there's a larger story where that incident fits into. But the point I'm making is that God may be working in your life by using difficult and painful things. It is likely that God is introducing things that we would not choose for ourselves, like a skiing accident, like cancer, whatever we want to put on that list, that God is doing that deliberately to bring healing to you. Evan says, I had this horrible accident, and yet, he says, I felt very healed and rejuvenated for several months. God raised up the Chaldeans, took his people into exile in Babylon, but his goal was to heal his people, and he did. He accomplished it. If God is already working, what is the equivalent of a Chaldean invasion in your life? What are you praying for? 
And are you ready to receive an answer that defies your categories of what God should do in your life? Would God raise up an oppressive government in response to the church's prayers for unity and vibrancy? Would God send a global pandemic in response to the church's prayers for revival? Would God introduce a financial crisis in your life in response to your prayers for a better marriage? Would God arrange a car accident in response to your prayers for spiritual growth? Would God bring illness in response to your prayers for someone's salvation? God is doing a work, whether we see it, whether we understand it, whether we approve of it, He is working, He is raising up the Chaldeans to accomplish His purposes for the good of His people. He's always doing that. The question is, are you you able to, to accept that, to see that, to say, okay, this is the kind of God He is. Now, as I'm talking about these things, and I'm talking about suffering and evil in your life, I'm talking about tremendous levels of pain, I am not at all minimizing the problem with it. Even if I can find good analogies, even if I can give you good examples from real-life experiences, I cannot minimize how difficult it is to come to terms with God using evil, bad things in your life for good. The problem of evil is a real problem for Christians. I'm not saying it isn't. I am not trying to move you to say there is no problem. Everything is fine. Of course God uses evil for good. It is a problem. And the fact that it is a problem actually is very meaningful to us. Now look at verse 5. Because God knows it's a problem. Listen to what he says. He says, Verse 5, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God answers Habakkuk's question knowing, get this, God knows that his answer sounds incredible to the prophet. Habakkuk says, I have this problem. There's evil and iniquity and wickedness and violence and division in Judah. And God says, I'm going to answer your concern, but you're not going to get it. I'm going to tell you what I'm doing, and I will tell you what I'm doing. I'm not hiding what I'm doing, but I know that you're going to struggle with that. I know that the problem of evil isn't going to go away right now. And so God actually tells Habakkuk something that he knows Habakkuk cannot completely grasp, understand, and come to grips with. The question is, why does God say it then? Why does God say, I'm, I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told, and by the way, I'm telling you, right? He's, I'm telling you I'm doing the work, but you're not going to believe it as I tell you it. Why does God tell him that? The answer is very simple, because God and Habakkuk have a relationship. Amen. That's the answer. God is telling Habakkuk what he's going to do, knowing Habakkuk is not going to understand, knowing there's another question that's going to come right after this answer, and the question is going to be, God, how can you use evil for good? God knows all this, but he still talks to him because they have a relationship. Friends talk to each other. God gives Habakkuk this incredible answer because they are in a relationship. 
Now, it's the same reason why a parent tries to explain how electricity works to a toddler, right? You know they're not going to get it. I know they're not going to get it because I don't get it, right? And yet, I have long conversations with my children about things neither of us understands. Why? It's a relationship because we talk. We talk to each other. God is talking to Habakkuk about things Habakkuk is not going to understand. He's going to struggle with it because they have a relationship. God isn't just concerned with communicating information and content. Of course, he's doing that. He's telling Habakkuk what he's going to do. He's talking about the Chaldeans. This is very, very specific answers. But he's not just concerned with communicating information. He's concerned with maintaining a relationship. Habakkuk brings his troubled heart to God, and God responds to him. God, why are you not doing anything about this? Habakkuk says. God says, Habakkuk, I'm working on it. You may not understand it. You may not approve of it. But please know that I'm not indifferent, that I'm not inactive, that I care, I know what's happening, and I am addressing it. Now, I'd like us to, to stay in that tension, the tension between what we think, what feels right to us, what we understand, what is natural to us, and what God says. He's incredible answers to our questions. I want to stay in that tension. and want to consider three possibilities of how to deal with it. Here's the first possibility. I'll call it a pretend relationship with God. A pretend relationship with God. Now, in this scenario, the believer has no problems with God's incredible answers. There's no tension between what they think and what God says. Nothing God says ever causes the person to struggle. Now, this type of relationship with God, unfortunately not uncommon in the modern church, is based on ignorance or denial of who God is and who we are. Now, think about it. If God is an infinite being who created everything that exists and upholds life by his immense power governing every moment of our existence by his immense wisdom and pursuit of his glorious purposes, if this is who God is, and if we are finite, sinful people who most days, speaking from experience, can't put their clothes on just right, if that's who I am, I'm a sinful, finite being, and God is this holy, infinite creator and sustainer of all, don't you think there might be some tension between what we think and what God says? If you never struggle with anything that God says, you're probably not listening to Him. You're probably not paying attention to what He's saying. Or you might only hear what you want to hear and filter everything else out. But either way, this is not a real relationship with God. If you are in this category of a person who never has any issues with God, never has any issues with how God works, understands perfectly what God says, if this is who you are, I am encouraging you to go deeper with God, to be more honest with Him, to be open with Him, and to hear what He's actually saying. Now, that's one possibility, is the pretend relationship with God. The second possibility, I'll call it the end of the relationship with God. The end of the relationship. 
There is so much tension in this scenario between what I think and what God says that I must conclude that God is not real. He simply cannot be this kind of person. I can't be in a relationship with someone like him, so I must end it. Now, this approach is based on arrogance. In this scenario, the person dismantles their faith on the assumption that God cannot be real if he does not fit their convictions and sentiments. Now, let me give you an example. Forrest Church, who is a Unitarian minister, said in an interview that he did not believe that death or suffering are part of God's plan. In his view, God cannot allow anything bad happen, like a drunk driver killing a family crossing the street or a tsunami. These are the accidents of life and death, as he puts it. He says, I cannot believe in such a God. For me, God is the life force, that which is greater than all and yet present in each. But God is not micromanaging this world. What he is saying is that God cannot do anything I don't understand or approve. This approach of resolving the tension between what we think and what God says treats God as a concept we can assess, to scrutinize, and determine whether it is useful or not for my life. It is not a relationship. No wonder that church concludes that God must be an impersonal life force. That's the only, that's the only way you can go with this. If you disagree with God... And if God doesn't fit your expectations, then the only way you can get out of this is say it's not a relationship because he's not a person. Whether he exists or he exists as a life force or he exists as an idea, but it's no longer a relationship. It's the end of the relationship. And if you are in this category, I'd like you to consider whether your own moral sentiments or the current cultural consensus on what, what is right and wrong are the right lens for evaluating God. The question should not be, what kind of God can I believe in? That's not the right question. The right question is, what kind of God is He? I don't start with saying, which idea of God fits me or doesn't fit me. I start with the honest question of, if God exists, what is He like? What is he? What kind of God is he? How do I build a relationship with him? Can I build a relationship with him? Here's the third possibility. I'll call it a real relationship. A real relationship. So it's not the pretend relationship of nothing ever goes wrong between me and God. I understand completely what he says. There's no tension. Nor is it the end of the relationship where I can't understand him, so he must not be real. This is a real relationship. In this scenario, there's, there is real tension between what the believer thinks and what God says. And yet this tension is accepted as part of the relationship between a holy God and a finite, sinful human being. This is biblical spirituality. We accept that there must be tension. There must be tension between me and God. We accept that some parts of the Bible are hard to understand and accept for me. They're hard. 
we accept that God gives us incredible answers when we ask Him honest questions. Answers we can't believe, we can't quite grasp or comprehend or, or accept. Because He is God. And to have a real relationship with Him, our idea of who He is must be constantly conforming to the reality of who He is. There is always change. The tension is right because I don't understand God. I understand Him more now than I did yesterday, but I still don't really get Him. So God is working on my mind. He's working on my heart. He's helping me understand Him better. And He's revealing Himself, and my idea of who He is is becoming more and more accurate to who He is. But there is tension because it's a process. Now listen to C.S. Lewis. He says, my idea of God is not a divine idea. We got to start there, friends, okay? All of us need to come to God and say, what I think of you isn't who you are. So please show me. <laughs> Teach me. Because I'm not starting from the same place with God as God is with me. Lewis says, my idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? I'll answer Lewis's rhetorical question, and I say yes, we can say that. I think yes, we say that his tension, the tension that I feel between what I think and what God says, is a mark of his realness and of my relationship with him. In other words, the tension that I feel between my ideas and God's words is proof that I am in a relationship with the real God. Because that's how relationships work. There has to be tension. And there has to be tension, especially between me and a holy God. In our passage, please notice this, in our passage, God is okay with us not understanding completely what He is doing. God is okay with us not agreeing with what He's doing. The question is, are we okay with that? Are we okay to stay in that relationship with Him where we admit that I don't understand everything you're doing? I can't understand everything you're doing. And some stuff that you told me that you're doing, I'm not sure what to do with. I don't know how to fit it into my life. God is okay with that because he tells Habakkuk, I'm going to tell you I'm doing a work that you would not understand, you wouldn't accept, you wouldn't figure out even if you were told, even if I told you. Are we okay to ask honest questions and receive real answers from God, real accurate answers from God, even if they are not what we think or want? Because that's a real relationship with God. Do we need to understand? Do we need to know? Do we need to agree? Do we need to approve? The Bible says no. To be in a relationship with Him, you don't need to perfectly understand everything. You just need to know Him. You need to trust Him. Now, when I read deconstruction stories online, 
And those are stories of people who used to be believers. They used to identify with Christ. They grew up in the church often. They've accepted and sometimes even promoted all the Christian ideas. And yet at a certain point in their lives, they've walked away from that. They've, they've dismantled their faith and they've said, I no longer believe that. It doesn't make sense. It's not true anymore. So when I read those stories, I'm struck with the assumption that God can be treated as a bad date and discarded as a toxic relationship. It feels very much like that story. A better approach is to see God as a parent and ourselves as children, which, of course, is the dominant biblical metaphor for our relationship with God. He's our Father. Would you think it's normal for a child to run away from home because her mom says she should have vegetables at dinner. The child can easily say, I cannot believe in a mother who thinks it's good for me to eat broccoli. I just can't, I can't accept that mom is this kind of person. Would you think it's normal for a teenager to become an emancipated minor because his father wakes him up every morning in time for him to get to school? Does it make sense? The teenager can easily say, I cannot believe, I cannot believe in a father who is so cruel that he makes me get out of my warm bed every morning, every morning he does that to me. How cruel must he be? He must not be my father. But this, these, these absurd examples are not actually any more absurd than for a person today to say, I cannot believe in a God who says that a lifelong sexual relationship with one partner of the opposite sex is good for me. Amen. Right? It's the same exact logic. Or, I cannot believe in a God who says that sin and evil must be punished. He must not exist, this God. The point I'm making is that a real relationship with God necessarily includes wrestling with incredible answers and living in tension between what feels right to me and what God says. That is the nature of our relationship with God. I am a finite person who, who doesn't understand what is best. I don't understand that. Given the options, I will not pick the best option because I don't understand what is best. I have a weak grasp on what is good, and I have a propensity to excuse evil. I'm going to have issues with the holy God. I'm going to struggle with what he says. I'm going to have to live in tension. I'm going to have to conform my idea of who I think he is to his revelation of who he is. I'm going to have to conform my idea of what my life should be to what he says my life should be. And step by step, little by little, agree and admit that he's right. That's the incredible answer that we see in Habakkuk. But he doesn't just do that. He doesn't leave him there. In the course of the scriptures, this passage points and hints and leads us to the ultimate answer. Because if this is all we had, this isn't enough. We need the rest of the Bible. We need the rest of God's revelation to help us really understand what God is saying here. And in Acts 13, the Apostle Paul preaches a sermon, and his sermon is 
essentially about freedom that comes through faith in Christ who died and rose again. That's his sermon. But he ends the sermon by quoting our passage, Habakkuk 1.5, as a, as a call to action, as a call to faith in Christ. Acts 13, verse 40 and 41. He ends the sermon like this. He says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. He's quoting the, the Greek translation of Habakkuk, but it's the same verse. But he's not talking about believing in the Babylonian invasion. The call isn't to accept the truth that God raises the Chaldeans to punish Judah. He's talking about believing in another work of God, a greater work of God, namely the death and resurrection of his son. The ultimate answer to Habakkuk's very honest question, and hopefully to our honest questions to God, and to our struggle with sin and evil, is Jesus. That's the answer. The cross and the empty tomb are the ultimate proof that God is not indifferent to our suffering, that God is not inactive, caring nothing about evil and wickedness and violence and sin and division that we experience. How do we know that God is listening to our prayers? Just as Habakkuk is praying, how long, Lord, I've been praying, how long? Do you even hear me? How do we know that God hears us? How do we know that God is not ignoring our cries for help? How do we know He's working? We know He's working because Jesus came to die and rise for us. It's an incredible thing that God raised up the Chaldeans to deal with Judah's iniquity. But it is even more incredible that God raised up Jesus from the dead to deal with my iniquity. And while we can't fully comprehend the magnitude of, of Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross, I can't, I can't wrap my mind around that. And I can't totally grasp the enormity of the power of the resurrection, that universe-reshaping event. I can't totally get it. But we are called to believe it. We are called to accept it. We are called to trust it. This is why Paul ends his sermon with this verse. He's saying, here's an incredible answer, and you can't totally get it. You can't totally get how God is working to, to redeem us from evil and sin. But you must accept it by faith. You must take it into your life. You must enter into this relationship with a God who gives you these incredible answers. The ultimate answer to our honest questions is a person who came to die and rise so we can have a relationship with him forever. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Do you know that your journey is defined by following him? You're not journeying on your own wherever you want to go. You're following Him. Do you know that your freedom comes through Him, through Jesus? Do you know that your meaning is found in Him, 
in Jesus. Do you know that your joy flows from Him? Friends, I can live in tension, and I can accept that what God says doesn't always make sense to me. I can defer to His wisdom and agree that I don't have to approve of all that He does. The reason I can do that, the reason I must do that, is because I know and trust the crucified and risen Jesus. Do you know Him? Do you trust Him?